Um, it's kind of nice I know, because I know some of your uh, early in your retreat journey or it's one of your first meditation retreats. I feel like a tour guide. I'm like, this is the time of day when we <laughs> do a Dharma talk. And um, it's um, a convention on these retreats like this. There's a little bit of Dharma all along, but this is like the main event. It's the Mm. only entertainment. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, typically the Dharma talks have a couple of purposes. And one is to um, help us contextualize our experience within the teachings of the Dharma. So like share a little bit of the Buddhist teachings and you know, see where our experience lines up with some of what's described. Um, it can be a place to um, kind of emphasize or refine instructions, like how we actually meet experience. Um, and my favorite function of a Dharma talk is just that it's a time to inspire our practice and remind us what we're doing here and why, (laughs) which um, sometimes uh, we forget, you know, so we can gather and remind each other. And I was thinking how funny it is. I I don't know the circumstances of each of your lives, but I know that for me, um, every time I decide to do a metta retreat, you know, I plan it months in advance. And when I plan it, it seems like a great idea. (laughs) And then when (laughs) when I arrive... Like, sometimes the circumstances of my life, like, I don't feel like it, (laughs) you know? Um, And then it still ends up being a good idea, but maybe not in the way that I originally thought. Um, The first meditation retreat that I taught after I had my daughter was um, last spring, and that was a meta retreat. And it was online, so I was at home, um, and I was like breastfeeding under the Zoom screen. <laughs> like, you know, it was kind of wild. It was not, um, it wouldn't have happened at Spirit Rock, let's just say that. But um, <laughs> I was really grateful to be able to, you know, be at home. And it was also really lovely. Like, um, I know I've talked to some of you who have done online retreats with far off teachers during the um, height of the pandemic, like there was something really beautiful about being able to practice together with people from all over the world, people that might not have otherwise come to retreat because lots of reasons, you know, it's expensive, food's not appropriate, other things. So it was, um, it was beautiful. And also it was like so intimate because yeah, people were like, in my home, I was in their home. (laughs) Um, And because I was home, it wasn't the kind of thing like here where you have like amazing vegetarian meals that just appear before you like three times a day. And I was still, you know, doing a lot of home things and trying to do them with the mind of meditation. Um, 
as I was, you know, popping in to guide meditation instructions or give a talk or um, do a, a group, you know, practice meeting. And so one of the days early in the retreat, um, I thought, okay, this will be a good thing to do in terms of tending my home. And typically on, on some meditation retreats, you have jobs that you do. Like you have like you tend the garden or you work in the kitchen or something like that. So I was like, I'm going to handle my backyard. And I should mention that my backyard had become a little overgrown. <laughs> um, I had this right when the um, COVID hit, uh, I had this, you know, panic about food availability. And I was like, we're going to grow our own food. And I made, you know, I constructed these garden boxes and got dirt and like planted all these things. And, um, and then I got pregnant like right after. And, um, I did not want to go outside. (laughs) Um, and so that was like that summer, like I planned a bunch of stuff, like never looked at it. And then the following year I had this like tiny little baby and, you know, I just didn't want to deal with the mosquitoes and it was just, it was overwhelming. Like it had, it, it had started to take on a life of its own. Um, and there were like, there had been storms and there were sticks that were like all in the, the lawn. And, um, I never removed the um, plants from the year before. So they were like like moldy peppers and, like, um, and this pile of wood chips in the back that like something was living in there and I didn't want to know what it was. And um, it was just a mess. But in this retreat, I was like, okay, well, I'm not work, you know, I'm, I'm doing Dharma work, but this is actually a good time to, in the midst of this metta retreat, address this situation. So... Um, Yeah, it was one of those days. It was a lunch break and I had eaten lunch and um, my partner at the time was taking care of the baby and helping her finish up her lunch. And I walked out to our back deck, which overlooks the lawn. And I just thought, you know, this is a true disaster. (laughs) Like it, um, just like, the height of the weeds. Like I didn't even know they could grow that high. And, um, and I thought, well, I'm never gonna, I'm, I'm never going to be able to fix this. And I was at standing there in dismay and despair, looking over this like backyard scene. My, um, kid's dad comes outside with her and I hear them walking up beside me And she looks out over the backyard and she screams, flowers! (laughs) And I noticed that all of, in this sea of weeds, there were these like little purple flowers that were, that had bloomed, that were like not planted there, not invited, not planned. And I hadn't really even noticed them, you know. And I thought, oh, that's the mind of Metta, you know, that can see the flowers even in a scene that to me looks like a real mess. <laughs> and what was cool about it is that once she pointed it out to me, I could see them too. <laughs> 
Um, and I think that's a little bit how metta works. And I think that's why it's worth sharing. So that is um, one of the ways that we can experience metta is like a um, like unfailing ability to connect with what's good, even when um, things are complex or mixed. And the experience of delight that can come from that and the energy that can come from that. Um, And it's not that we're, you know, papering over what else is true, but it's like a... a discipline of focus that helps to bring a balance of attention because as many of you read or maybe just you know, from observing your own minds, the human mind does tend to pull towards what's not going okay. Rick Hansen calls this, he's a neuroscientist, calls this a negativity bias. It's like being in a car that always pulls to the right. <laughs> and you can't fix it. <laughs> Except in a moment-to-moment way to kind of center um, what's beautiful and what we care about and what matters to us. Um, And to have the discipline of not letting ourselves or other people forget about that. Another way that we can experience metta is um, it's sometimes described as a presence of a thing, like the presence of friendliness, the presence of love, the presence of like uh, ability to connect with goodness. It's also... Um, translated sometimes as an absence of a thing, which is a little harder to conceptualize. But it's like the absence of aggression, the absence of struggle, um, the wish for no harm to occur. And so I just wanted to name this because that's also on the spectrum of metta that is a little more subtle. Like it might not feel like this like expansive, like flowers, flowers everywhere kind of like you know, experience. We don't always have that flavor of metta, but sometimes we might notice like, okay, um, maybe I'm not feeling, you know, a effusive outpouring of love, but maybe there's no desire to hurt myself or other people. And that's metta too. Um, I was talking with someone earlier today um, about who asked like how you know metta is working, and I had to think about it for a second. And I, I the example that I came up with, um, I really appreciated the opportunity to think about it actually in this way. Is that um, you know of course before teaching this retreat, I took it as an opportunity to amp up my metta practice and really like practice for myself, practice for the other categories of beings, which we'll get into. And, um, and so that was going on. And 
I was on my way to the airport. I had gotten to the airport. Uh, this is yesterday morning, very early in the morning. And I was about to go through security and realize I didn't have my passport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I packed <laughs> protein bars and a fancy clock and this nice bell that I've been ringing. Doesn't this sound great? Um, but the passport. <laughs> which would allow me to actually enter this fine country was not something that ended up in my bag. And so I freaked out, walked downstairs, called an Uber, um, and, uh, you know, got in the car, was like, we got to get to my house. We got to turn right back around. We got to get to the airport. I missed my passport. I, I don't have my passport. He was like, got it. And um, he <laughs> put on Michael Jackson. We were on the road. <laughs> Thriller's playing, and um, you know, uh, we get to the house, and I run upstairs, and uh, I thought that it was sitting on my kitchen counter where I had checked in while I was making coffee early that morning. I was like, it's got to be there, and I get in, and it's not there. And I looked in the drawer where I keep it, and it's not there. And I checked the pockets of my pajamas, and it's not there. And I think, like, you know, I look around about five minutes, and I'm like, I'm not going to make this flight if I keep looking. So I'm just going to like bring my New York, you know, my, my Pennsylvania state ID and some credit cards and just prostrate myself before the <laughs> Canadian government officials and see if I can just get in here. And so I turn back around, you know, we get in the car. He's like, did you find it? I was like, no. He's like, man, you know, so we're like <laughs> driving back to the airport and I am looking through, um, I, I go to pick up my phone out of one of the pockets of my little um, purse and I find the passport just like laying flat next to the, the wall of the purse. Like I had, I had put my hand in, I took it out, but it was laying like kind of beneath the zipper where I couldn't really get to it. And I guess I hadn't like thoroughly excavated that, that pocket. And I was like, oh gosh, I found it. He's like, oh boy, you know? And so we were like racing to the airport <laughs> and I got there and, um, you know, I, it wasn't a very long line. I talked to a couple of people in front of me. Um, I said, look, I forgot my passport at home, had to go back. They're like, we've been there, go ahead. You know, and I, I got in front of them and I got to the gate with about five minutes to spare and I got on the plane. Hence, I am here teaching you this Metroid <laughs> <laughs> Street. Um, and it's funny because when, you know, I talked to, you know, Sarah who picked me up and like, Muriel and Viviana, they're like, how's the, the flight? I was like, oh, it's cool, like uneventful. And I didn't realize until this person asked me that, like part of what made it feel uneventful is that I didn't have that voice that was like, Kate, you stupid idiot. Why didn't you put your hand and feel around in that pocket <laughs> and realize you already had your passport? Um, I hadn't been berating myself all the way home and all the way back. Um, I didn't feel like a complete mess up. I was just like, whoop, <laughs> hope I make it, you know, and that, um, I don't think that would have been my response 10 years ago. You know? And I don't think I, you know, I would have noticed unless like someone was like, how do you know what's working? I was like, oh, I don't talk to myself the same way that I used to when I mess up. So another possibility, another example of how meta works, you know, sometimes it's like 
we send metta to the difficult person and we don't hate them quite as much, which we'll get to. We'll do that tomorrow. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like applying metta directly to the place that hurts. Sometimes it's offering metta and populating the mind with a field of love. And something that we didn't know was holding on lets go when we're not even looking. And we turn back and realize we're not gripping in quite the same way. So it's mysterious. It's not always linear. There can be surprises. And, um, yeah, beautiful discoveries. Unexpected flowers. When I was um, in conversation with some of you today, um, there was a, a theme that I was noticing that I've noticed in my own mind, um, which is probably why I noticed it. Um, just this question of like, why is it so hard to love ourselves sometimes? You know? And of course, not everybody experiences this all the time, you know? Um, and I, if you're experiencing a lot of like self-love and it's really consistent, like that's a beautiful place to be and may it continue. You know, we have those moments of um, experience sometimes on meta retreats where it's just easy and it's just flowing. And if you're experiencing that, um, let it in. Yeah. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you might. So when it comes, just let it in. You know, enjoy it. Soak it up. Let it bathe every single one of your cells. You know, it's deeply healing. And then sometimes it's like, it's not kind of getting in or it feels like um, there's the voice of love, but then there's these other voices that are like, this is corny. <laughs> or, um, you know, any one of the not so great reasons that our minds can tell us we're not worthy of love. And in terms of why, you know, it's going to be different for each one of us. Certainly there's like personal experiences that we've had that have not affirmed our loveliness. It happens. It's not great, but it happens. And it seems to be a part of every human experience, as far as I can tell, you know. And it impacts us. And then we get on retreat and it's like, those moments that haven't been fully digested or fully integrated, you know, those parts of us that are still kind of hanging back in that moment of rejection or loss, they're like, oh, you have time now. <laughs> oh, retreat? <laughs> Perfect, you know. And they just like, it's like they rise up to the surface of our experience and we know them again, right? But the wonderful thing about being on retreat is that we actually have the conditions to be able to meet them with love and form a different relationship with them. And that can actually transform our experience. 
And so we not we might not have been able to see our own goodness at the time and others might not have seen it in us but maybe we can see it now And maybe that memory, that part of ourselves can find a different place to kind of settle and rest inside. It doesn't have to scream so loud for our attention because it's been seen and known. Amazing that we can do that, right? Like, And then, of course, there's the... Um, Circumstances that aren't so personal, but that we're all impacted by, you know, these like systemic forces that are just so violent when it comes to like our attempts to be fully human, (laughs) you know, certainly when it comes to patriarchy and white supremacy culture and homophobia and transphobia and ableism and all the isms and the obias that we're swimming in. It's like everybody, everybody suffers. You know, we can see that not everybody's oppressed by every single system, but everybody suffers. And so that's part of what we're healing from here too, is the ways that, you know, our systems have not been set up for us to fully love ourselves and each other and the heartbreak of that. And our ability to love um, anyway. Oftentimes that those like barriers to love come in the form of thoughts. And, um, you know, thoughts about ourselves, thoughts about sometimes other people. Uh, I remember being on a retreat at Instant Meditation Society many years ago, and someone asked Joseph Goldstein what a thought is, like to define a thought. And he just paused. He was like, thoughts are words and pictures in the mind. And I was like, so offended. (laughs) I was like, my thoughts are very special. They're very intelligent. (laughs) They're very unique, you know. But sometimes it's helpful to just kind of pop that bubble when there's like a thought happening that just is like, seems like it's following around tormenting us. Like, oh, you are made of words and pictures in my mind. That's it. You know, there's not, it's not actually as substantial as it seems. And so we can let them flow through us. We can let them flow around us. We can let them flow out. We don't have to actually 
give them a place to land in us. You know, um, there's this uh, poem by a poet named Della Hicks Wilson that I like. She says, all words like us are 90% water. You can choose to drown in the ones that hurt, or you can choose to let them cleanse you. So it's a practice, you know. It's an activity of sending phrases to ourselves and to expand the range of those phrases, send them to other beings. And it's also uh, an attitude of mind that we can bring to literally whatever arises, even when it's not pleasant. And metta, in addition to being you know, a practice, an attitude of mind, a way of approaching experience, a lens that lets us see the flowers. It's ultimately a wish, you know. It's not a demand. It's not a declaration. It's not an affirmation. Those things are wonderful, but that's not what metta is. It's an invitation. Um, It's a wish. And it means that we offer ourselves these beautiful wishes, knowing that um, we're not always in control of how we feel. And that we might wish metta and feel metta. And we might wish metta and feel boredom. And we might wish metta and feel numb. And we might wish metta and feel irritated or impatient. We might wish metta and feel grief. But the healing of the practice isn't in the state of achieving metta. It's in the wish for it. It's, It's really in the wish. And so we're in the practice today of wishing ourselves well. And it can feel like a, like a humble or like solipsistic activity, but it's not. It's not from the perspective of interdependence, which says like on some level there is actually no separation. And that if I can love myself well, it's like a template for how I can treat every other being. And it's especially important for those of us who through personal circumstances or for systemic societal reasons have been taught that we're... um, that loving ourselves is wrong or that like um, there's something not lovable about us. 
There's an author, um, Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote a book called The Body is Not an Apology. Ooh, that title. She talks about these forces that I described earlier as body terrorism, because so often they attack us at the level of our bodies. They should be a certain way, certainly different than they are, right? And the amount of money that is spent and made on making us think our bodies are not okay. She says, radical self-love summons us to be our most expansive selves. Knowing that the more unflinchingly powerful we allow ourselves to be, the more unflinchingly powerful others feel they are capable of being. And that's like distinctly meta power in my mind. It's the power that we have that makes others feel powerful. It doesn't diminish. So yeah, we start with ourselves. And um, I was remembering a few years ago, there was this quote around going around um, attributed to the Buddha. It was something like, um, you could search the whole world over and never find someone so worthy of love as yourself. You guys hear that ever? That was fake. <laughs> There's this... There's this, um, there's this, don't look it up because you're not on your phone right now, but there's this great website called fakebuddhaquotes.com. <laughs> People say a Buddha said a lot of things that he did not say. <laughs> but, and you can tell kind of because of the, like the, it doesn't sound like, it's not like, sound like Buddha, you know? But the sentiment checks, right? Probably why people thought it was, you know, so I don't know who said it, but um, it's not wrong. You know? um, and you may be feeling the kind of like tenderness that comes from that, like really sweet and innocent wish just to be happy and to not suffer and to be free, to be healthy, you know? I don't know why it feels so tender. It's like everybody wants it, but we're supposed to pretend like that's not what we want, you know? I just want other people to be happy, but I'm okay feeling terrible, you know? It's like, you know, we wish, we wish that all beings be happy and free. Like, we're all beings too, you know? Each of us is part of all beings. And there can be grief or a feeling of like, oh gosh, it's been a long time since I've loved myself or how many years have I spent, you know, not feeling this way like I felt today at moments. Like that's, that's part of the practice too, I think. Um, it can be for our lifetime, it can be for generations of beings in our lineages or who we love and care about who didn't um, know how beautiful they were, you know, and spent their whole lives trying to be something else. But um, Thich Nhat Hanh says when we heal, we heal not just ourselves, but we heal our ancestors. 
and we heal our descendants. So we're like a big acupuncture points in our lineages. <laughs> Just send, send healing in all directions, right? So it's about you and it's more than you. And when grief comes up, and I, I know grief too. Grief has been a consistent visitor for me over the last several years. I've like come to expect her. And um, include her in the practice. Send her some metta, invite her to sit with me, teach her how to do it. I guess that's another quality of metta. It's inclusive, right? Everything can be folded in. Whatever is arising in the practice can become a part of it. There's nothing that it can't hold. So in the tenderness, I just encourage you to keep trying. Your efforts are very beautiful and very palpable. It feels good in here. And um, in this spirit of tenderness of trying, I wanted to read you something from a, um, a writer I like. Lisa Oliveira, this is from her, um, her recent newsletter where she's talking about um, just trying to do things differently, you know, trying on a new meditation practice, trying on a new movement practice, trying to work a little differently and how um, how raw that can be. She writes, the tenderness of trying is woven up in not knowing how it will go. Not knowing whether success or failure or some combination will result. Not knowing who I'll be on the other side. Not knowing if I'll embarrass myself or impress myself or confuse myself. Not knowing much at all. There's a sense of knowing when we don't try. There is more to be in in control of, more to be sure about, more to be certain of. When I don't try, the only possible outcome is it not happening. When I do try, it could bring disappointment or discomfort, a crash and burn of experiences I'm not always sure I'll be able to handle. But what I'm remembering is that trying can also bring complete delight. I'm working on feeling the grief that is so often wrapped up in what it means to try, to put ourselves out there, to be afraid and show up in our shaky limbs and all, pushing past long-held narratives about what we're capable of in order to forge new paths, move new mountains, embody new ways of being. If you find yourself teetering on the edge of not trying and then finally going for it, if you find yourself experimenting with a felt sense of embracing discomfort, if you find yourself moved by a momentum that feels new, fresh, and scary, if you find yourself fearfully trembling with each step forward, 
if you find yourself questioning whether or not you can tolerate it all, if you find yourself going toward the things you long for, even with no guarantee, I hope you take some time to recognize the trying, to honor the trying, to let the trying perhaps be just as important as whatever it may lead to. I'm working on it too. So it's okay to be working on it. We're all working on it. Um, I just bow to your efforts and it really encourage you to keep trying. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.